Well, it's time for another tutorial session. And this time, we have to return to talking about the mania over electric vehicles. It's beyond obvious that everything about electric vehicles these days is animated by the pursuit of cutting carbon dioxide emissions, of course. And that's a problem because the facts on the ground, as they say, make it clear that EVs, electric vehicles, not only won't dramatically reduce global CO2 emissions, in the real world that we live in, and will for a long time, they could even lead to greater emissions. So let me explain. This is not a political statement. This is a tutorial. These are just an observation of the facts. Whatever you think should happen is different than what will happen in the real world. Look, I know that electric vehicles, in fact, it's a, it's, a clear, it's a clear fact that electric vehicles stand at the center of the, not just the, but every green energy initiative, precisely because electric vehicles have no tailpipes, therefore zero emissions. No emissions in the car, zero emissions of any kind, uh, especially CO2. Everyone knows, I know, that power plants use, that are used to charge the batteries for electric vehicles, everybody knows the power plants emit something. But everyone also knows that the governments of the world, many of them have plans to fix that too. But here's the key. Even on a zero emissions grid, which essentially doesn't exist anywhere, and certainly doesn't exist very many places in, in America and virtually over the country, but, and it won't exist for decades. But even, but even on a zero emissions grid, EVs will still lead to CO2 emissions. And as I said, maybe more than driving a regular car. How that's possible, I'll come to it in a second. But first, look, we got to note the obvious that at least a dozen U.S. states, at last count, and more than a more than several dozen countries have outright banned the sale of internal combustion engine cars. A ban that's going to take place within within a decade in many cases, sometimes a little over a decade, twelve years or so, 2030, 2035. And the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA's new rules that have been in the news a lot lately, that radically ratchet down uh, tailpipe emissions, will have the effect, as has been widely reported, will have the effect of essentially banning most, if not all, internal combustion engines, certainly most internal combustion engines in the United States. And that'll take place long before decades out. So we'll see if those rules stand, but that's what they're proposing to do now. And, and of course, as I've talked about, and lots of people have talked about, the Inflation Reduction Act, it's hundreds of billions of dollars, include massive subsidies, permanent subsidies, really, if the law stands, uh, to convince people uh, to buy electric vehicles, you know, for the clean, trans the clean transportation initiative, the zero emissions initiative. So EV is central to the idea that we're on the cusp of a grand shift to a new energy economy. Uh, with all of its putative environmental benefits. The EVE, in fact, we're told, is just a better machine. You know, it's easier to manufacture, uses less labor, will eventually cost less. And so what's bad about that? What's bad about encouraging that? Well, there's only one unequivocal fact in this sort of this broad EV narrative, this EV mania. It's that EVs uh, are practical vehicles today. They exist now as a practical option. They haven't existed as practical options, uh, well, essentially forever, because the very first electric cars over a century ago weren't practical. We know that because they were 
immediately displaced by internal combustion engines the second that a practical internal combustion engine was available. But there are they are practical now. They're useful. And there's something on the order of 15 million electric vehicles on the world's roads now, which is not nothing. It's not much in a world of almost 1.5 billion uh, cars and light-duty vehicles, but it's not nothing. It's a, it's a huge change from zero. And it's also obvious lithium battery chemistry, the inventors of which received the 2019 Nobel Prize in Chemistry, that the invention of lithium battery chemistry was a game changer. The other hidden game changer that doesn't get much publicity, but was co-equally important uh, and not known by most people is are the have been the advances in uh, power electronics, not computer logic. Well, that's an, an integral part of uh, controlling uh, power, but it's the power electronics, the, the fact that we use power transistors instead of mechanical switches to switch to control power. The silicon power electronics revolution is a quiet one, one I'll talk about more in the future, but an extremely important one to the advent of practical electric vehicles. But everything in the popularized uh, EV storyline, there's no other way to say this, is hyped. Uh, no surprise, we always have hype cycles with technology. But what's more importantly, and also not particularly surprising, is a lot of things that people think they know aren't true, or uh, many people, including many experts or self-proclaimed experts, clearly profoundly misunderstand the nature of electrical and energy systems. And many of the misunderstandings are come from a sort of a deeply misguided uh, understanding of the nature of how energy is supplied to systems and how machines work. You could say, uh, to you know, paraphrase, rarely have so many claims about a product with so little uh, penetration so far been so wrong, <laughs> but to paraphrase a uh, uh, a great line uh, that I, I embarrassed to steal from uh, Winston Churchill. But the most important central feature of the electric vehicle, the EV, the feature that is the sole reason that policymakers and enthusiasts are feeling confident that they can ban internal combustion engines. They're feeling confident that we have to have a, a world with only EVs. The, the central feature that's animating that, of course, is a reduction, a radical reduction, or elimination of carbon dioxide emissions. So I'm going to talk about why that conviction is so misguided in just a second. But if you haven't listened to my earlier podcast about electric vehicles, especially in my year-end 2022 one, this, this, if you haven't heard that, you know, obviously you can go back and listen to it. Nothing's changed fundamentally in the world since then. Just got a little crazier, but nothing's really changed. Let me let me just highlight briefly a few of the other uh, misunderstandings about the claims made around electric vehicles to lead up into the grand misunderstanding, which is that they'll radically reduce CO two emissions. The central conceit about EVs is that the switch from combustion engines to EVs, and I and this is not me making it up. You've doubtless all heard this. You've seen it written. The central conceit is this is just like the switch from the horse and buggy to the car over a century ago. This is that kind of transformational re revolution. And therefore, not just something we should encourage, but it's inevitable anyway. So why is it, why would you be worried about spending a little money now to accelerate an inevitable transition, one as profound as the switch from horse and buggy to car? 
That's an analogy. That's what what's called a category error. It's a category error of the first order. An electric vehicle, is, an EV, is still a car, just a different fuel source, but it's still a car. All the features and attributes of why people buy cars, the primary reason the cars are used, the reason the cars were adopted instead of horses or buggies, is because cars are different than a horse. A, a car is not an artificial horse. It's profoundly different than a horse. An electric vehicle is not profoundly different than a car. It's a horse given different food, in effect. It would be no different than if somebody came along in the early 20th century, and I'll use the analogy of used many times, but I got to use it again because it's important to have in your head. It's no different than somebody coming along you know, right around the early 20th century. There were, there were bunches of cars around, but you still saw more horses and buggies than you saw cars on the streets of America's cities. There's plenty of old footage of that, those kinds of scenes, including in New York City, of more, more horses and buggies and trolleys, of course, um, than cars. It'd be like an, invent, an inventor, an innovator, an excited po um, policymaker coming up, running around and, and uh, touting the fact that they found better, better quality food and different sources of food for horses. And this was a revolution of, of a profound nature. It would have been consequential if America didn't couldn't grow the food for its horses and had to depend on other countries for the food, the feed for horses. But it wouldn't change the fact that it was still a horse. So that's... I've beaten that one to death, but it's really an important um, concept to wrap your head around. But we're not talking about a cultural, sociological, and economic change in transportation of any consequence, except perhaps a negative consequence if other features of EVs don't approve. For example, I mean, the advocates say that EVs are just simpler machines than vehicles with combustion engines, you know, because the engine is complicated. But look, this is this is again another uh, misunderstanding of the nature of the two kinds of propulsion systems. Yes, the EV's electric motor is very simple, a couple of moving parts, but the battery, the EV's propulsion, key propulsion energy source, is roughly a half ton electrochemical machine with thousands of parts and thousands, tens of thousands of welds, of uh, wiring and electronics, the control systems, structural systems. It's every bit as complex in a mechanical and electrochemical, electrophysical sense. Every bit as, as complex as an internal combustion engine. And in fact, it's more expensive. An internal combustion engine vehicle, you have a very simple fuel tank. It's got electric pump with a couple of moving parts, complex engine. In an EV, you have a very complex fuel tank, thousands of parts, complex, wears out, and a simple propulsion system, the electric motor. You've switched complexities. It's important to have that in your head. And also when it comes to the labor claim, uh, you know, this is the, the this is the profound irony. Uh, it's not it's not that it is said that EVs are simpler and therefore take fewer people to make, but it's not true. When you count the apply the whole supply chain, the, the entire system of labor involved in producing the drivetrains, what you find out is that per vehicle produced, counting the entire system upstream, that EVs, in fact, take more workers so far. In fact, the Tesla's Tesla's battery factory, based on their published data, they produce about a thousand propulsion batteries for 12 per 12 workers per year. So every year, 12 workers produce a thousand propulsion batteries. That sounds pretty impressive, except that at a typical uh modern engine and transmission factory, you can there's a thousand propulsion systems produced per year with four people, four workers. So you know you could say the the unions should be happy about that, except the reason they're not is because those workers are typically not 
in, on American soil. So that's what hence the subsidies to bring more of the assembly plants here. But that's not where all the workers are. A lot of the workers are overseas because of all the labor involved in producing the components that are assembled by a battery factory and all the labor involved in producing the key minerals and materials, which are then put into components elsewhere and then assembled in US battery factories. So what we're doing with EVs is exporting labor and increasing the need for labor other places in other ways. Um, that's a trade you could argue that's fine if, if, you're, if you're sort of looking purely at an Adam Smith kind of economy that, you know, who has the expertise, where do we want to find its cheapest, is a trade that has geopolitical consequence too, of course, because as everyone now by now knows, uh, China is the utter, utter dominant source of both materials and therefore labor in all the primary input components to make the battery, which brings us to the CO2 story, because that's where the carbon dioxide emissions happen. They happen in the ecosystem upstream from the battery assembly and the EV assembly plants, where we're going to spend apparently hundreds of billions of dollars in direct subsidies, loans, and inducements to build EV assembly plants and battery assembly plants in America. All of them require the input of primary materials, lithium and cobalt, manganese, and you know uh, nickel and uh, copper, aluminum, uh, neodymium. It's a whole suite of so-called energy minerals that are needed to manufacture a thousand-pound typical automotive battery. Accessing all of the to get to those minerals. And this is the this is the key to the CO2 story, the emission story. To get to those minerals, the thousand pounds of final components that make the battery, you have to dig up, mine, move, and process something under the order of 500,000 pounds of raw material somewhere on Earth. That is, again, we state this again, I've said it many, many times. It's an important fact to have in one's head that a typical EV battery weighs about 1,000 pounds. By typical, I mean the battery in uh, 80% of all the vehicles EV sold in America so far, that battery uh, weighs about a thousand pounds. And to manufacture that battery somewhere on earth, you've had to dig up mine, process and move something on the order of 500,000 pounds of dirt and rock just to make the one car battery. That's the essence of the the story of CO2 emissions that have nothing whatsoever to do with the grid you drive the vehicle on. The emissions associated with accessing the, the accessing the locations where the, the mines are and the mineral processing is, to digging up the rock, to grinding the rock up, to making the chemicals, to dissolve the rock, because you have to dissolve rock to get access to the minerals, and then all the chemical processing and refining that follows those all are part of an industrial ecosystem, mining and refining industry of minerals. Understanding the physics of energy in that domain is precisely where the CO2 emissions myths begin and end. But let me put it, let me restate uh, the energy physics problem this way in basic terms. The, a car, because it's untethered, has to store fuel. It's same for, for an airplane, but we're sticking with cars. So to match the energy stored in one pound of oil, so have this in, in your head, right? To, to match the energy stored in one pound of oil requires 15 pounds of lithium battery, which in turn requires digging up about 7,000 pounds of rock and dirt. 
to get to the minerals you needed to make the battery. Now, that one pound, 15 pounds of battery and 7,000 pounds of digging up, just to be clear, that ratio includes the lower efficiency of the internal combustion engine. For the cognoscenti out there, I can hear you thinking or saying or, or screaming at me, you didn't count the fact that an electric motor is 90% efficient and a typical internal combustion engine is only 20 or 30% efficient. Yes, I did count that fact. It, the one pound of oil or gasoline, its energy value is equal to 15 pounds of lithium battery, which requires 7,000 pounds of digging up, taking into account the different energy efficiencies in the machinery that uses it to propel the vehicle. So that's where the, the half ton comes from. But if you wanna store enough energy to um, have the car go three, 400 miles, you need a half ton battery to replace sort of in the range of 80 pounds of gasoline. And that half ton battery is where the, the mining and processing of 250 tons of material uh, happens. And, that, and then again, for the, the battery cognoscenti, those ratios are roughly the same for every lithium chemistry. Chemistries that have uh, no cobalt use more nickel. Chemistries that even eliminate lithium because they have lower energy density require more more aluminum and more copper and therefore have more weight. And so you have the same broad issue of accessing physical materials. That ratio, a pound of oil or gasoline requiring 15 pounds of battery, and digging up 7,000 pounds of rock or dirt somewhere, that's sort of locked into the, the energy physics of those two domains of, of electrochemistry, hydrocarbons versus lithiated chemicals or their, or their chemical cousins. So the, the question then about CO2 emissions has to deal with what are the emissions associated with digging up 250 tons of materials and rock? to make the one car battery. What are those emissions? Well, those emissions are emissions associated with the global mining and refining industry, about which there are a whole myriad of, to use the uh, the phrase that came from Don, Don remember uh, Secretary Rumsfeld back in the, uh, <laughs> the uh, two, two decades ago, and he talked about known unknowns. The known, we, there are a lot of known unknowns about mining and refining in the, in the global mining and refining industry. What we want to understand to know what the real emissions of an electric vehicle are, we need to know more about the known unknowns, but what happens before the, before the battery's assembled, before the EV is assembled, before, before the very first mileage you've ever driven in, in an electric car. You want to know what's happened upstream. It's called the embodied, the embodied emissions and the embodied energy upstream. Look, a conventional car also has embodied emissions upstream. Of course it does. You have to manufacture everything. everything nothing exists in our, in our society that isn't manufactured. No service exists as well manufacturing something. No products exist unless they're manufactured, which means everything is upstream emissions. And that those, those vary wildly. Sticking with the car domain, the conventional internal combustion engine car has upstream emissions. They're dominated by the the nature of the materials that are in a conventional car, self-evidently. 85% of the weight of a conventional car, is, it comes from steel and iron. Uh, we know a lot about, we know an awful lot about uh, steel and iron's energy, energy burden, it's embodied emissions. But we also know that the embodied emissions, the entire range of known unknowns and known knowns about embodied emissions of steel and iron, make it a minor factor 
in the sort of the life cycle CO2 emissions of a conventional car. Uh, burning gasoline dominates the carbon dioxide footprint of a conventional car. Self-evidently, once I state it, but it's important to, again, have in your head that I'm not ignoring the upstream emissions from the uh, internal combustion combustion engine car. It's just that they they tend to be something on the order of uh, you know 10% of the life cycle emissions of the uh, of that vehicle. The EV the ratio flips, right? If you have a perfect grid with no carbon dioxide emissions, obviously 100% of its emissions are upstream. And if you have a typical electric grid uh, on the United States then you might find anything from 10% to as much as half of the emissions are associated with the fuel making the electricity. But with an internal combustion engine car, it's essentially 90% of all the emissions are right before your very eyes when you fill the gas tank up. With your EV, they're not, not right before your eyes. They're not only hidden, but they are plagued by an entire array of labyrinthian industrial activities upstream that are full of known unknowns. You have to know a lot about the specific materials used and where they were sourced. And the suite of materials being used does include steel, of course, and iron, but is dominated by the extra weight of an electric vehicle. And they all weigh more, again, because the fuel tank weighs a half a ton instead of 80 pounds. And again, for those of you who are cognoscenti, the electric drive motors weigh roughly the same as an internal combustion engine's iron and steel or aluminum block. So the all the weight delta, all the weight variation is tied up in the fuel tank. EVs weigh more, but the extra weight comes from copper, nickel, and aluminum, those kinds of things. And here's the key. And this is where the emissions story begins and where it will always end because the average amount of energy needed to produce a pound of copper, nickel, or aluminum is three to 10 times more than the average amount of energy needed to produce a pound of steel. These greater energy intensities are where uh, EV emissions uh, begin and end. This is this is the whole this is the whole story. This is the story that is not news to the International Energy Agency. It shouldn't even be news once I state it, but it's poorly understood, and poorly acknowledged because of simplistic hand waving about emissions reductions of EVs without taking into account the incredibly wide range of emissions associated with the real world EVs. Look, the International Energy Agency, the IEA, flagged these realities in the report uh, that they published back in 2021. I wrote about this report at the time in the Wall Street Journal. You could still find that uh, op-ed that just typing in, you know, my name, RP Mills, Wall Street Journal, International Energy Agency Minerals. And you can even see a letter exchange between me and the IEA over some disputes over uh, them claiming that I misquoted them. I didn't. In fact, they were disingenuous. I was I was clear. Uh, it was embarrassing little exchange, I think, for them. But the fact is, I used IEA data, and there's lots of other data that others have used and I've used since, to illustrate the fact that there are very surprisingly high quantities of carbon dioxide emissions and surprising the high levels of uncertainty about the carbon dioxide emissions associated with getting copper, nickel, and aluminum, and all the other minerals and metals upstream before you actually start assembling the battery and then the EV. The emissions variables depend 
why are things like what what the age of the facility is that's doing the minerals acquisition and processing of the kind of processes they're using inherently because there's many different kinds of processes the actual location of the facilities those the variables as again the IEA has pointed out can lead to a doubling or tripling of the uh, carbon dioxide emissions intensities of producing a pound of copper, aluminum, or nickel, or, or lithium, or cobalt. Uh, and in fact, we do know that uh, a typical EV, for example, has several hundred pounds more aluminum than a conventional car. The additional aluminum is needed uh, both for the, uh, the the battery itself, the uh, the cathodes or uh, metal is uh, is aluminum, and the uh, battery is so heavy that a lot more aluminum is used to uh, f- form the instead of steel to, for the body and in the frame of the vehicle. So this is essentially baked into the nature of EVs. First, you can't you can't not use aluminum in the battery itself, and you need aluminum to lightweight the vehicle. So you have a few hundred pounds more aluminum. Does that matter? Yeah, sure, because you know some of the studies that purport to have to show a light footprint upstream. Some uh, for making an EV. Some of those studies, in fact, assume that the aluminum would be produced uh, on the U.S. grid on hydro, with hydroelectric power. I mean, I'm not making that up. Some studies actually make that assertion. When the United States actually produces less than two percent of the world's aluminum, uh, something on the order of two thirds of all the world's aluminum is produced on coal-fired grids in China, Russia, and India. I mean, it's beyond silly to make that kind of assumption. Uh, it's possible one day we'll bring back more aluminum production onto hydropower grids or solar grids, if you like, in America. But that's not the world we live in, and nor can we get to that world anytime soon. In fact, if you take into account the variations uh, in emissions intensities for the refineries that process critical energy minerals, they, you know, they, again, they vary not only just by a factor of two amongst different refineries, but on average, where 50 to 80% of the world's energy minerals are in fact processed, that's China, emissions there per pound of processing are at least 150% of the emissions of any processing done uh, on European or US grids. And that's of course not where the processing is done. We're not doing it on US grids or European grids, we're doing it in China. I looked at a lot of studies on this over the uh, over the years. There's there's a study of studies, which is kind of handy. So of these overview studies, uh, a study of uh, of something like fifty different evaluations of this upstream emissions feature of electric vehicle batteries. That analysis of those fifty different studies found that the bottom line estimate of the upstream emissions, the embodied emissions of making a battery, the bottom lines vary by as much as fivefold. I mean, it's an incredible variation. They also found that most of these studies uh, and analyzed upstream emissions based on what I would call wildly unrealistic assumptions about the size of the battery. The battery size matters. Let's just be clear. The battery size tells you not just the range of the vehicle, but the which is what people want longer range, but the battery size tell me, tells you how much minerals you need to mine. Because if you want to double the amount of energy held by a battery, you double the size of the battery. It's that simple. That's the way it works. And if you double the amount of materials, you double the emissions upstream for the battery. The average battery, the median rather, the median size battery in these 50 studies was 30 kilowatt hours. Again, for the the, uh, the EV enthusiasts, you know that a 30 kilowatt hour battery is, is, a, is a tiny battery by electric vehicle standards. It's one half to one third the size of the battery that is in, in uh, uh, Mustang 
the the Mustang, uh, the Ford Mustang E, and in the in the most popular Teslas. Uh, in fact, roughly speaking, eighty percent of all electric vehicles sold last year in America had batteries that were somewhere between sixty and ninety kilowatt hours, not thirty. So if you if you double or triple the size of the battery, you double or triple the carbon dioxide footprint upstream. Period. But most analysts, what they do, including at the IEA, they not only use small battery sizes, they use an average number uh, of emissions for the upstream burden of the battery. They use an average number of the, for, for the range. You, using the average of a wide range is not only not accurate or correct, it's profoundly misleading because you'd have to know what end of the wide range you typically get the materials from to know what the actual emissions are. It's it's not relevant to say that the average amount of money that you have in an American's pocket is I'll pick a number fifty dollars, and when the range is from is you know one to a hundred, if most people have you know a hundred dollars in their pocket, I mean you get the it's arithmetic here. You get where I'm going. The median and the averages don't tell you anything about where the real distribution is. You'd want to know the distribution. Where do most minerals come from? Not what is the average number. Well, if you use the average number, you get very misleading results. Uh, and, and the IEA knows this, by the way. The IEA actually actually says as much in their reports. They point out that the variations are huge. And in fact, as I'll come to, they point out that the the, the average and the absolute numbers are rising. But they also say, and this is sort of where the disingenuous part comes in, the IEA says in their report, and I'll quote, that the emissions along the mineral supply chain do not negate the clear climate advantages of clean energy technologies, end quote. Well, everybody says that, you know, climate studies, governments, proponents parrot that claim. And in fact, that's what's that's the whole motivation for the mandates and bans on internal combustion engines. The fact is the IEA did itself shows that it's far from clear. It's not clear. You have to identify the specific minerals and sources of the minerals and the refineries to know what the actual emissions are. The, con- the impact of that is the impact of getting the range right is clear. It's clear that emissions may not go down much in the real world, and they might even go up. Let me give you a specific example. Both uh, Volkswagen and Volvo, to their credit, have published studies at their websites. You can find them. I've referred to them before. Uh, they're, they don't brag about them particularly or publicize it. But I don't know that they necessarily need to or should, but they don't. But they're, they're both reasonable studies illustrating the life cycle CO2 emissions associated with one of their electric vehicles compared to uh, the internal combustion engine option of their vehicles. So they what they did is they counted upstream emissions from manufacturing and getting the chemicals and the battery and the real-world emissions on a EU grid. And then what they discovered is that you have to drive uh, over 50,000 miles in your electric vehicle before you have emitted less CO2 than if you'd just driven an internal combustion engine. So at the 50 to 75,000-mile point, there's sort of a break-even. That's hardly zero emissions. But And they do point out in their studies that after 120,000 miles, sort of the typical lifespan of vehicles that so people keep them and use them, that there are uh, are net emissions reductions, right? You cross over and then you start saving. But the redu- reductions that they show, that again, this is Volvo and Volkswagen, the life cycle total emissions reductions, counting everything, about 15% in one case and 25% reduction in the other case. 
So as a reduction, that's hardly zero. It's not even huge. And, but here's the key, two things. First, the battery size for the vehicles that they considered, the VW was 36 kilowatt hours and the uh, Volvo was 69 kilowatt hour battery, right? This 36 kilowatt hour battery, they exist because you can buy a, a Volkswagen Golf with that. But most, most again, the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of uh, EVs being purchased uh, and the ones that consumers seem to want has, have batteries that are uh, bigger than a 69 kilowatt hour battery, typically in the 90 kilowatt hour battery range. And if we look at the bigger SUVs and the pickup trucks now that are being electrified, we're talking about you know batteries that are more like 150 to 200 kilowatt hours, huge batteries. So in any real world outcome, if you incorporated not only the bigger battery size that people are buying, but the variables, the unknown, the known unknowns about the emissions associated with those batteries rather than a fixed average number, you end up either whacking in half any of the savings, so they become sort of seven and 10% over the life cycle of the vehicle, or even in scenarios that we we know about where emissions are higher, that is emissions to manufacture the battery, the final, final bottom line can be that the electric vehicle in, ends up emitting more CO2 than just driving the conventional vehicle. What's worse for the uh, carbon counters is that we know that upstream emissions are increasing. This is locked into the geophysics and the geology of the planet that we live on. The International Energy Agency acknowledges that. It's not, this is not a secret. It's not a gotcha. It's not political. What they acknowledge is that the surge in demand for energy minerals, which the world is not planning to meet, by the way, but that surge in demand faces a geological reality that the global ore grades, the grade of ore, the quantity of metals and minerals per ton of rock, that global ore grades are falling, and, and I'll quote them, are falling across a range of commodities, meaning minerals and metals. Lower ore grades mean that more of the earth must be dug up and processed to yield the same pound of metal. By definition, that's what it means. And as the IEA also says, and I'll quote them again, because this is not a political feature, although it has political implications. They said, and they write, lower ore grade requires more energy and greenhouse gas emissions and waste volumes, end quote. We have evidence of this. Um, it, there's a lot of evidence of this in the technical literature, but we we know, for example, the data show that in Chile, and Chile is the world's uh, number one producer of copper, and copper is utterly essential in every part of the energy transition. It's the most important sort of central metal that Chile in the last decade uh, has seen its energy use in its copper mining sector jump tenfold more than the increase in copper production. State it again. Remember, the Chile has increased its copper production over the last decade, but its energy use to produce that copper has grown tenfold more than the increase in the absolute quantity of copper produced. That means the emissions associated with copper have been rising and they will continue to rise. So, what EV enthusiasts say in response to all of these facts, especially the ones I've just outlined regarding the emissions, upstream emissions is that technology will get better. Well, of course, technology will get better. Technology always gets better. That's what engineers, innovators, and technologists do. They make technologies that they've invented better because that's how you compete. That's how progress happens. You make it better. So of course, better, lighter, and even cheaper lithium batteries or batteries of all kinds will be different kinds of batteries. Of course, they're inevitable. So too, uh, 
So too, is it inevitable that we'll see better, cheaper, sort of lighter environmental footprint, environmental footprint in every sense, the lighter environmental footprint of mining? Of course, that'll happen. But progress in those big industrial domains has been and will continue to be slow. It's, these are very high inertia industries where you don't change things rapidly overnight. And so what that means is if you rush to subsidize and mandate uh, EVs that have to mine now, you're subsidizing and mandating greater use of yesterday's technologies. It doesn't make the future happen sooner. It, in fact, it, it effectively stifles innovation because if you have to really accelerate today, you're going to use what you know how, what works. And what works is not the future technology you haven't invented or perfected yet. What works is what we invented yesterday. So again, mandates and subsidies tend to incentivize yesterday's technologies. They don't tend to create future technologies. Yes, and you know, I know economists say provides the pressure on markets that they'll you know, innovate to compete. All that's true. They do that anyway. But the net effect of subsidies, when you really accelerate things to put the pedal to the metal, so to speak, is you're going to get a lot more of yesterday's technologies. And you don't get it that you don't get as, as much fat, you don't get a, a velocity increase that you'd like. You can't you can't make the velocity of opening a mine happen faster just because of money. You have permitting problems. You have, you have we don't we and we have regulatory issues and we have just physical pure inertia, ability to find and open mines up quickly. The average globally is 16 years, according to the IEA. Even if you imagined cutting that in half to eight or 10 years, we won't open new mines for a decade. And yet we're planning to mandate that you can't buy an internal combustion engine by the time that decade happens. And the new mines won't be open. And the mines that we accelerate between now and then will be using yesterday's technologies and increasing CO2 emissions. So when we get to that date, there'll be fewer and more expensive vehicles emitting far more CO2. Yes, of course, someday the U.S. will reshore uh, high-tech minerals industry. You know, it'll be both cleaner in every sense of the word and more transparent, but not to be a pessimist, since I'm the last optimist, don't hold your breath for that. Meanwhile, we're going to spend hundreds of billions of dollars designated for a wildly premature uh, mandate to require that consumers have either explicitly or implicitly only one kind of fuel option, the you know the battery option. This is not going to end well, um, but it's going to take a while, I think, to uh, for reality to, to uh, rear its proverbial ugly head. Uh, I don't see, I will say that uh, just to, to close on this, this, uh, this pessimistic note for those who are wildly enthusiastic about EVs, for, uh, an optimistic note who think that maybe reality will, will, uh, will prevail. That's where my optimism comes in, because I think we're going to quickly discover very soon, well, not long, it might take a year or two yet, the limits to the velocity of expansion of the mining sector. And then we'll be examining more critically where those mines are and the mineral refining processes are. We're starting to do that already in the public policy space. And that will lead to a little more realism, and which is a reason to be optimistic. Uh, it doesn't mean there won't be more EVs in the future. Uh, there's going to be lots of EVs in the future. Electric vehicle is is a is a, an interesting, important, and viable option for many consumers, especially wealthy ones. There's lots of wealthy people in the world, in America, uh, in Europe, and lots of lots of households in wealthy countries where there are two or three cars, and that's where electric vehicles tend to be purchased, and they will continue to be purchased there, even without subsidies. There will be 
if I were guessing, hundreds of millions of EVs in our not too distant future. How soon that happens will depend more on how quickly mining expands to prevent those EVs from getting more expensive instead of staying about where they are, which is still more expensive than a conventional car. But we're a wealthy country. Lots of people have money and buy cars for reasons that are not just as pure utility function. So I'm not pessimistic at all that there won't be lots of EVs. There will be. And, and now I'm particularly pessimistic that about uh, Tesla's future, which is, this is sort of a Tesla story because Elon Musk's company is the one that essentially is the primary the primary uh, catalyst for the EV mania. Not, not because of an evangelization they did, but because he was so damn successful. I mean, here's a, here's a last irony to, to close on. The, the Model S, Tesla Model S, was first introduced and sold, when I say introduced, first sold in 2012. That was exactly 100 years after Studebaker, which was, ended its production line for electric cars. And it was the biggest seller of electric cars back at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, EVs back then had dominated car sales for almost 20 years. There were more more EVs until roughly what happened is the uh, the Model T came along uh, a few years before uh, Studebaker gave up and the transition was natural. And no one no one had to uh, ban uh, Studebaker's cars to encourage the Ford to be ascended. It was just better. Uh, what we have in the century long history of vehicles since then are literally hundreds, arguably thousands of different models of cars that meet all kinds of different. Uh, needs, desires, wishes, functions, utility uh, features. That it just—it's a incredibly fascinating, diverse domain of consumer choice. And one of them will be the battery electric vehicle. There's no question about it. And it is a big deal, but the state again—it's not a revolution the equivalent of changing the. It's like changing the food for the horse, simplistically. And it's a big change. It's an interesting one. And I'm optimistic we'll get to a, a reality check. That's where my optimism comes in. So once more, let me close by saying that if you're enjoying these podcasts, spend a few minutes to give me a ranking, a rating, a positive one, of course, as always, on the platform that you use. And I will, as I keep promising, return to some questions that come in. I suspect we may get more questions on this particular issue than any other one, since it's one that about which there is a higher degree than normal of emotional uh, attachment, if you like, in convictions. So I invite any comments or questions or up or um, uh, contentions that you might have with respect to things I've said about the magical electric vehicle. And until I hear from you, and until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for this episode of The Last Optimist. Mm-hmm.